Amen. This morning, you can go ahead and turn in your Bible over to John chapter 12. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we want to offer you one. We've got Bibles at the middle of each aisle. Somebody sitting on the end will be kind enough to pass one to you if you don't own a copy or didn't bring one with you. It'd be really helpful to you, I think, to have it in front of you. The passage we're going we're gonna to be covering this morning, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be looking at it in some close detail. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want to point you to certain, certain parts of it, certain verses of this passage. It'd be very, very helpful for you to have it in front of you. So take one of those Bibles if you don't have one. Take it home with you. We'd love for you to have it. That would make us so happy today to have less Bibles than we came with. So please take one if you don't have one. We're going to be in John chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 20 to 36, um, where Jesus gives us direct insight into what he came to earth to do. What we get is a purpose statement of sorts. Now, as a writer, I can't stand purpose statements. Any of you guys, I mean, probably most of you guys have, have dealt with this before, even if it's just like in your college applications, right? You have to offer a personal statement that sort of justifies yourself to the world in 50 words or less. You never grow out of these things. I mean, they're in every paper that you write. They'll be in every graduate school application. For those of you who are thinking grad school, for those of you who are maybe in the academic world, you're having to, you're having to do these things for grant applications all the time. And, and really, they don't, it's, it's not just limited to the academic field. All of us, no matter what sort of business you're in, if you're trying to pitch yourself to somebody, your services... Chances are you've got to be able to condense it into something nice and pithy that's going to be winsome to them, right? Those things are awful to write, excruciating, painful, but as a reader of them, they're gold. As a reader, as someone who has to evaluate something else, purpose statements are gold. And we've been seeing some of this already in John because one of the first things we looked at when we started this series back in January was John's purpose statement. Now, it's at the very end of the book. You know, a grant writer will tell you, you don't want to do that. You want to, you want to take it. John, John would not have gotten funded, right? You want to take it and put it at the beginning so everybody knows how to read it. We did that for him. But John chapter 20 has this statement where he says, everything I've written here is just, just, uh, just a drop in the bucket of what Jesus actually did. Could have said a lot more. But everything I did write here, I wrote so that you would believe in him, so that you would believe specifically that he's the Christ, that he's the one we've been waiting for that he is the one who can set the world to rights. That's, that's why John includes everything he's included. We've been using that purpose statement as a way to, to sort of unlock the meaning behind a lot of the stories we've come across in this book. Well, today, what we come to is not just John's purpose, but Jesus' purpose. Jesus tells us here, for this purpose I have come. And we want to unpack it together. And there's one central theme that runs like a thread through this section that brings us deep, more deeply into Jesus' sense of purpose in his coming. And that theme is glory. He came to win glory. I think we know what that means. Uh, glory is, is often a, a word for brightness or splendor. When we talk about the glory of the sun or the glory of a beautiful jewel or something, it's about its shining, its splendor, its luminosity. That's a good word, isn't it? Luminosity. Use that one later today. More often than that, even, what we mean when we talk about glory of people is something great that they have done that we can see. And it's got to be visible. Glory that's not seen isn't really glory because it, it's tied up with reputation. It's tied up with the celebration of what they've done. 
to, to, to win glory is to win affirmation or approval or celebration from those who have seen what you've done or who you are and affirm it. Jesus came to put something on display. He came to win glory. But the glory that he came to win, well, it's multi-layered. And what we want to do today is sort of peel back those layers. We're about to come to a section of John's letter that is the most practical section of the letter. In chapter 13, where we'll hit in a couple of weeks, almost through the end of the book, almost well over a third of the book's material, all happens on one night of Jesus' life with, in one long extended conversation with Jesus and his followers. It's all about how to follow him well. It's all about what it means to be his disciple. It's very practical and hands-on and nuts and bolts. But before we get there, what we need to do is, is sit under the weight of his glory. We need to sit here in this text seeing what it is that's beautiful about him before we'll be ready to, to latch on to the practical how-tos of following him well. Because something about his glory, something about what he's come to do, to put on display, sets the template for what it is to follow him, to be like him, to go where he is. So that's what we want to do this morning. We just want to see him. The passage starts with a, a group of Greeks. That's, all, that's the only way they're identified. Some Greeks who come. And the only thing they say when they find Jesus' followers is, we want to see Jesus. Isn't that it? I mean, I think, I think, I think if, you know, if, this was, if this were our, if, our, if this, this room right here belonged to us, what I would want to do is like hang a big banner back there on the back wall that I could look at every time I'm standing up here. Anyone else who's preaching up here could look at and just say, says simply, we would see Jesus. It's the calling for all of us every time we come to his word. It's the purpose for every time I stand up here or any of, any of the other elders stand up here to preach to you. And it's our, it's our special calling this morning, looking at a passage where Jesus puts himself on display and tells us in no uncertain terms what it is he's come to do, what we must see if we're going to be with him. I want us to, to look at, at three layers to Jesus' glory this morning. Jesus came for the glory of his death, that Jesus came for the glory of his Father, and that Jesus came for the glory of his people, for all who would follow him. Now, those points are listed for you in your worship guide if you want to follow along, if you want to jot down some notes. Those points are listed there for you. What I want to do now, before we get any further, is read the passage together. So I'm going to ask you, please, to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from John Chapter 12, verses 20 to 36. This is the word of the Lord. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, 
the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The first layer of Jesus' purpose, the first layer of the glory that Jesus came to win, is the glory of his death. And this is the theme that's, 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 most, uh, that's most dominant, I guess you could say, throughout what we just read. It kind of comes up in several different places. It's clear that this is ma- the main thing on Jesus' mind right now. The way he gets into it is strange. I mean, I got nothing for you here. I don't know who these Greeks were. I don't know how they heard about Jesus. Most think that they were probably what, what the Bible often calls God-fearers, people who were Gentiles. They weren't Jewish by birth, but they respected Jewish religion. There was something about the way the Jews talked about God that made more sense to them, perhaps, in the mythologies of their Greek fathers. There was something about the moral code of the Old Testament that seemed more more right to them, perhaps, than the behavior of the gods and their heroes in their mythologies. For some reason, they're drawn to it. They come to Jesus at this feast, and they've been hearing buzz about him. They want to see him. But that's where it is. Jesus doesn't talk to them, at least as far as we know. They become a sort of trigger for him. It's not about them and their coming. It's about what their coming points to. Somehow now, Jesus, who has been rejected by his own people time and time again, sees that the hour has come for him to bring the world to himself. What they trigger is Jesus' statement that now, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is language we've heard before in John. It's not the first time he talked about his hour. It isn't the first time he's talked about being glorified. But when he's talked about those things, it's always been future up until now. My hour has not yet come. My glory is not yet here. Now, now the time has come. Something about these Greeks has, has triggered this, the sequence of events that his whole life has been building to, which is to say that the time has come for him to die. That's the thing Jesus emphasizes over and over, his death and what it accomplishes. And it's not unheard of to us 
that someone would, would, would gain glory by their death. When he says that I've come, that they, I've come, the hour of my glorification is here, and, and when he makes it clear later on that he's talking about his death, that's not completely unheard of to us. I mean, this, this week, we're going to celebrate, I think it's the 13th anniversary of September 11th, where hundreds of men and women won great glory for themselves by running into buildings that everyone else was running out of, by giving up their own lives, trying to save other people. There's a glory in that. Death can lead to glory. We're familiar with that. But when those firemen died, those policemen, their deaths were accidents. Surely what they were hoping for was to be able to get in, to grab people in need, and get out. They died a sort of martyr's death, which is to say they were willing to put their lives on the line. They were willing to die if necessary, and it ended up being necessary. But with Jesus, we get something altogether different. Now, he's been building all along the sense that he came here to earth precisely in order to die, that he had to, that it wasn't something he was willing to do. It was something he had to do, that for him to be glorified, for him to accomplish his purpose, it it meant going to the cross. Why? Why did Jesus have to die to win glory? There's two places here in the passage we read that show us why he had to die, why his death is his glory. There's, the first one is an analogy that he uses in verse 24, and then he sort of unpacks that analogy in verses 31 and 32. If you have your Bibles, look down there with me. Look first at this analogy. Why, why is death glorification? That's the question we're asking. Why did Jesus come to do this? The analogy he uses in verse 24 is an agricultural one. He says, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. If it dies, well, then it bears great fruit. I think that even though we're not an agricultural society, the point still lands on us. You know, sometimes seeds might be pretty to look at, might have a sort of glory in themselves, my three-year-old is obsessed with magnolia tree seed pods right now. Don't ask me why. We go to Centennial Park a lot. There's a bunch of magnolias there, and he, he spends his time not playing on the, on, the, on the play structures, but gathering up these seed pods that have fallen or asking me to break them off, which is probably some sort of crime that I'm now guilty of. I break them off from the tree branches, and he'll take them home in, in bags or buckets or whatever he can use to carry them because they have a certain glory to them. They're pretty. You know what I'm talking about, right? They're kind of soft, a little bit pink if they're really ready to go. And when they open up, they're, they're pretty. There's, there's these beautiful red seeds inside there. There's a kind of glory to those seeds, but, but the, glory, the glory that they have on their own, well, that pales in comparison, doesn't it? To the glory of a 200-year-old magnolia tree in full bloom? Now oh, that's Glory. by protecting these seeds, by keeping them as they are, by trying to preserve them, my boy is stealing some of their true glory. But for a seed to get to its full potential, for it to accomplish its purpose, for it to really reveal how glorious it is on the inside, what's got to happen? That seed has got to die, in a sense. I know organically, 
That's not precisely what happens. I know it's still alive, but you know what I mean. It's got to stop being what it is. When it goes into the ground, something changes. Something pops out of there. The, 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 whatever it is that's holding the material of that seed together splits apart. It has to die, in a sense, before it bears any sort of fruit, before its true glory is revealed. And Jesus' death is like this, he's saying. Now, there's a kind of glory that he's already shown in his life. He's come doing amazing things. And this is the guy who's fed 5,000 people, who has spoken and healed people with a word, who, who's healed paralytics, who paralyzed all their lives, who touches a blind man, and gives him sight, even though he's never seen. This is, this is what Jesus has come doing, and there is some glory in it. There's a kind of glory that is self-contained, right? So far, you know, it helped the person that he healed, but it didn't do anything for the, for the other thousands upon thousands of paralyzed people or blind people that were living in the world even when Jesus was alive, much less ever since. Jesus' glory was on display in full when he raised Lazarus from the dead, but it didn't do a whole lot for the other people in the thousands upon thousands of tombs that were even in that one country where he raised Lazarus. It didn't do a whole lot for Lazarus himself because the poor guy just ended up dying again. There's a kind of glory that Jesus has already shown, but it's very limited. The fruit of it, it's, it's, it remains alone in a sense. Something true of him, but not that useful to others. This glory is nothing compared to what he has left to show. To what Jesus came to show. He has come to to bear much fruit by planting his life in the ground so that from it will spring life eternal. But how does that work? The analogy is clear enough. For Jesus to bear the fruit he came to to bear, for him to show the glory that he came to show, he's got to die first. But how? How does that work? What's so glorious about his death? What is it about his death that lifts him up, that wins him celebration and honor? I think that's what he points us to in verses 31 and 32. Now, Jesus says, is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is the substance of what his death does, right? So far, he's just talked about needing to die. He hasn't told us what his death accomplishes. This is as close as he's come. And what he tells us, what I think we've got to latch on to this morning, is that we can't understand Jesus fully without seeing the enemy that Jesus came to destroy. We can't fully savor Jesus until we're willing to get our minds around an unpopular and anti-modern idea that there is a personal force of evil behind everything that's wrong in this world. There is a somebody. You can call this somebody Satan. You can call him the devil. You can call him Beelzebub. Call him whatever you will. But the Bible insists that he's there. Jesus doesn't tell us much about him here. He just calls him the ruler of this world. But pulling from other places where the Bible talks about him, we know know what he's up to. 
And we know why Jesus' death would be so perfectly fit to wipe him out forever. What the Bible tells us this evil ruler of the world is up to is convincing God's creatures that God isn't trustworthy. Convincing them to go away from him. To turn to themselves or to other things in this world in place of him. And then once once they've sinned, to beat them up with their own sin. There's a place in Revelation where the devil is called the accuser of the brethren. It's his job to bring up in your mind everything you've ever done that's wrong. All those things that you can't undo that you wish you could. Those things that you're tempted to believe define you once and for all. Every time you think about those, every time those memories come into your mind, that is the ruler of this world at work beating you up over what he's convinced you to do. Now, this is not to suggest you're not responsible for what you do. The Bible's clear that we all are. But that even as we're responsible, there is an enemy at work. But all of his power, every ounce of power that this being has in this world is drawn straight from unforgiven sin. Every ounce of his power comes from what we have done that we can't undo and him holding that up to God and saying, see, they don't deserve your love. See, they deserve your judgment. And what Jesus has done by his death, the way that his death has once and for all wiped out the ruler of this world is that Jesus has laid himself on the altar as the ultimate Passover lamb. He is what John has called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. His death is a glorification for him, not because he was a martyr who was so willing to die that that he fought all the way till his last breath to save us, but because he came here precisely in order to lay his body on the altar, to take away once and for all the sting of every single sin we could ever commit against God, to wipe out the power of unforgiven sin, and with it, to take away any grounds that the ruler of this world has for accusing us before the God who made us and for threatening us with the specter of death. Jesus has wiped that clean as the ultimate Passover lamb. And that is his glory. His glory, his lifting up, is his life laid down for the life of the world. And through his death, he draws all to himself. That's the point John wants us to get here. Earlier in John chapter 1, verse 14, way back at the very beginning when John was sort of setting the stage for where he was going to go, introducing some of the key ideas and terms that he was going to run with later, he told us there that the Word became flesh. The Word, the one who was with God, the one who made everything that is, that Word became flesh, became like us, and we beheld his glory. And if you're just reading that verse by itself, You haven't read the rest of the story yet. What you're thinking is, oh, he's made God visible so that we can see his splendor, his brightness. We can see how powerful he is. And that's true. Immediately he starts in all these incredible things. And that, that, you're thinking, is what John means when he says that the word took on flesh so that we could see his glory. But now what we're seeing is that that, that's that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the faintest flicker of the glory that he's about to show. He had to take on flesh in order to show us his glory, 
because he had to take on flesh before he could be killable. And it is only in his death that we see how truly glorious he is, the one who once and for all has robbed the ruler of this world of any sway over his children. That is his brightest glory. But verse 27 points us to another layer, not just his own glory, the glory of his death, another layer of glory that Jesus came here to show, to highlight, to put on display, to celebrate for all the world. And that is the glory of his Father. Verse 27 is one of the most remarkable statements that Jesus makes in this gospel. All along, everything we've seen so far has been building to Jesus going to the cross. His central purpose in life, the glory that he came to reveal, the death blow that he came to deliver, all of it building to the hour of his own death, and now that hour is here. Hour not in the chronological sense of 60 minutes, particular segment of time, but hour as in opportunity or moment. The time has come. And in this moment, the moment that his whole life had been building to, the moment for which he emptied himself of the glory that he had with his father before. That moment is here, and in that moment, Jesus' fully human soul is troubled. There is dread in him. There is dread in the one who turned water to wine, in the one who healed the man who had been paralyzed for life, in the one who opened the eyes of the blind and gave life to a dead man. In this fully human soul, there is trouble. He really did become like us. And when he was troubled, what was it that bolstered his confidence? What did he look to when the realities of his life were weighing him down? What shall I say? Here's what I would say. Father, save me from this hour. But he knows this is why he's come. So what shall I say? Father, glorify your name. What bolsters Jesus in his moment of trouble is his confidence that God, his Father, is worth it. What he falls back on is trust in the Father, his love for the Father, his confidence that the Father's will is right and true and full of love. His confidence that this will is worth living and dying for. But to my mind, there's still another important question here. There's a really important question left to answer. It's clear enough that Jesus' purpose in coming, he's he's making it plain here in verses 27 and 28, that his purpose in coming is partly to glorify his Father, to make his Father look good, that even when he doesn't want to do what has to be done, in that moment when his fully human soul is weighed down, in that moment he remembers that God's glory is worth it. It is worth everything that lies before him. But why is it that God is shown to be glorious by the death of Jesus? 
Why is it that this glorifies the Father? It's clear that Jesus wants his Father's name to ring out, right? He wants everyone to see his greatness. He wants you and me to read of what he did 2,000 years ago, of what Jesus did on the cross, and when we read of it, to be moved in our hearts to glorify the Father. That's what he wants to see happen. But what isn't obvious is how the Father gets glorified by the death of Jesus. Because you know what? There's a way to read this. There's a way to read this in which the Father doesn't come out looking good at all. Where Jesus looks great, but the Father looks distant and angry. There's a lot we will never understand about what Christians call the Trinity. But at the very least, we need to clear up one major misunderstanding. One major misunderstanding that has, that has always troubled the church in different segments of it, and it might be troubling you now. We've got to get clear. And that misunderstanding is that Jesus pays off the Father. That Jesus pacifies Him. That Jesus stands between us and Him because the Father really can't do without this punishment and sort of agrees at the end to take Jesus instead. Where Jesus is for us and the Father is against us. Friends, that, that, that understanding of what's going on here has no place in this gospel. One of the things that we've seen over and over in John, particularly, for example, if you, if you want to go back and do some more reading on this, John chapter 5. One of the things that we've seen in John chapter 5 and elsewhere is that so far from, from Jesus stepping in between us because God wants to get us and he wants to protect us, so far from that, what we, what we really see is Jesus and his Father working together before time began, together aiming both of themselves at redeeming those who don't deserve it, at redeeming those who had rejected him. What we see, what Jesus insists on all through this gospel is that when he comes to earth, when he lives and dies and rises again for us, every single step of that was planned out by his Father. And he loves it. This isn't a father exploiting his son's desire to please him and getting him to do the thing he doesn't want to do for himself. This is father and son given unity partly because of their shared plan for bringing redemption to the world. One of the things that makes them one in this mystery that we call the Trinity is their joint commitment to caring for us. When Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And when what he means by that is, the time has come for me to die. What he's saying to us is, that when you see him dying, the credit for what he's doing goes to the will of the Father who sent him. Who was pleased to crush that which was most precious to him in this life. The Father's will sent his Son. Both of them were wronged by sin. Both of them must absorb the pain that forgiveness always requires. Both of them gain glory through what Christ came to do. It was the Father who joins his hands to Jesus in protecting all his sheep. 
It was their shared love that put all this in motion. And it's the Father who's going to make sure that it all comes out complete in the end. When Jesus is troubled, when what he sees is his death more clearly than his new life on the end of it, it is his Father that he cries out to, and it is his Father that answers him. Father, glorify thy name, he says. And his Father answers, I have. Through everything you've done, I have glorified my name. And I will glorify it again. I will glorify it when you lie on that cross. And I will glorify it when I bring you back from the grave. And I will glorify it when I win through you a whole host of people who are pleasing to God because of Jesus. I have glorified it and I will again. Nothing can stop our plan. I will not leave you in the grave. Jesus died so we would see this love and glorify our Father, our Maker and our Redeemer, who would not even spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. There is one last layer to the glory that Jesus came to win. To me, it's the most surprising. He came for His own glory, the glory of His death, His death as that which lifts Him up, not just physically on the cross, but in the, in, in the favor of God his Father and in all those who will, who will be attracted to him, to the beauty of his sacrifice and worship him for it. It is his death that, that glorifies him. It is also his death that glorifies his Father. And finally, he came to, glory, to glorify his own people. Like I said, I think this is the most surprising, but there is great beauty in this. There is great encouragement for us when we see that Christ came so that we would be well-pleasing, so that we would be approved and accepted, so that the same celebration that he receives from his Father would spill over onto us. Now, I want to I point you to a couple places where this comes out and then say a little bit more about what I mean by it. There's a couple places where it comes out. The first is in verses 25 and 26. This is where Jesus is, I think, I think what he's doing here is kind of setting up what he's going to do in chapters 13 all the way through chapter 17, where he's going to unpack for his followers what it means to follow him. He's moving in these verses from talking about what he's going to do to talking about what he wants to do with his people, what he wants to bring them into. Those who serve him follow him, he says. They go where he goes. They experience what he experiences. They enjoy what he enjoys. That's what he's getting at in verse 32 as well, I think, when he says that his death, this lifting up, this glorification, draws people to him so that they're attached to him, so that in his lifting up, they also are lifted up. They are where he is. They are, they are receiving what he receives. They're with him. Same thing comes up, I think, in verses 35 and 36, where he tells them to come to the light while they still can. That if they come to the light, meaning himself, they can become themselves sons of light. Something about what's his becomes theirs. His glory, his radiance, his perfect record of pleasing the Father becomes theirs. I think that's what he's saying, what he's pointing to in each of these places. He wants them to bask in the light of his glory. He wants his people to be kind of like his entourage, right? Not a perfect illustration, but it works, I think. 
what is an entourage, but a bunch of people who hang out with someone who's done something great or who, who has a certain kind of celebrity, who has a glory, and by hanging out with him, by being around him, some of that glory spills over onto them, right? They get some of the perks of it. It's applied to them. They're in the paparazzi shots, right? They get the free drinks and the free rides and uh, whatever else. You know what an entourage is. I think that's partly what, what, what John's pointing us to here, that Jesus and what, and, and what he gets spills over to those who are with him. But it's even more wonderful than that. It's even more specific and more wonderful than that. Because when we're with Jesus, the Father honors or glorifies us. I think that's what he means in verse 26. If anyone serves me, whoever is with me, whoever lines up under my kingdom, whoever falls under my rule, that person, the Father, honors. Remember what we said about glory? That's one way of thinking about it. Glory is an, a, a sense of approval or celebration of the goodness or worth of something. Jesus is saying, those who are with me get the track record that has won me glory as their own. That when their father looks at them, he sees me and he honors them. Why is this such good news? I know it's abstract. I know it's a little hard to latch on to. There's one one sermon, though. You you guys are going to have to forgive me for quoting this so often. I feel like I do it at least three or four times a year. But you're about to get another one. There's this one sermon that helps me taste the sweetness of this promise more than any other I've ever read. It's a sermon by C.S. Lewis. It's a sermon called The Weight of Glory. It's talking about glory, about how hard it is to sort of connect with that idea, how it seems very distant and churchy, but how if we really understood what the word meant, if we really understood the promise that we would receive it, then it would help us to see and savor, to love and enjoy Jesus. Here's what Lewis says about this promise that we would be honored by our Father. Lewis describes what he calls the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a beast before men, a dog that wants to please its owner, the pleasure of a child before its father, a pupil before its teacher, a creature before its creator. This sort of pleasure of the inferior, of having pleased the one you were made to please, Lewis says is is a very basic, innocent, and even humble thing. You know that Part of what makes you you, part of what gives you purpose and meaning is pleasing someone else. That's a kind of humility when it's innocent. It's entirely appropriate, he's saying, to seek praise and approval. It's what we were made for. The problem is that we tend to seek it in all sorts of wrong places, which makes us selfish and insecure. Or as Lewis puts it, I'm not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is parodied in our human ambitions? Or how very quickly in my own experience the lawful pleasure of praise from those whom it is my duty to please turns into the deadly poison of self-admiration. But, he says, I thought I could detect a moment, a very short moment before this happened, before the desire to please turns sour and selfish before it turns to pride. I thought I could detect a moment 
during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that, that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. Friends, all of us want this at some level. All of us want to be pleasing to other people. And often we don't realize how bad we want it until we fail to get it. It's when we have failed to win the approval of someone who's very important to us that we see just how deeply we want it. Lewis continues. The promise of glory, the promise of our text, the promise of glory is the promised, promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall find approval, shall please God, that we will have that ache soothed once and for all. To please God, Lewis continues, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work, or a father in a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory too great that our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. So it is. Jesus came so that in him the Father honors us. So that through him we make our Father happy. He came, in the words of verse 43, that we'll get to next week, so that we might stop running after the glory that comes from man and bask in the glory that comes from God. He came so His Father's approval of Him would spill over to us. And He came so that you could experience that. One of the most beautiful promises embedded in all this language we've been unpacking is the promise that when Jesus was lifted up, he'll draw all to himself. Now we know from the context here that he doesn't mean everybody who ever lived. From what he's talking about around here, there are people who reject Jesus, people who will be judged. So what does he mean when he says all? What he means is that there is no one who comes to him that he would ever turn away. He came for all sorts of people. And there are no exceptions to his all. Everyone who comes to him will receive this glory. It goes not to the elite who have earned it, not to the religious insiders, but to people like these Greeks who've come looking for Jesus. It goes not to the law keepers who kept themselves pure, the popular or the successful. The the Father is pleased by, the Father glorifies and celebrates and honors those who were with Jesus. And he came for all. It doesn't say that he came for all those except those who have sexual sin in their past. Or all those except those who aren't smart enough to understand this gospel. It doesn't say he came for all but the socially awkward. 
He doesn't say he came for all except those who have fat retirement accounts and live in comfortable suburbs. He doesn't say he came for all except anyone. He came for all who come to him. And that means you. The blessed approval of the God that made you is waiting for you if you come to Jesus. So come. Father, your promise is to draw all to yourself through Jesus. And so we pray to you now that you would stand true to your word and remind those of us who have been your children for some time of the sweetness of this promise. Banish from our heads all thoughts of guilt or shame that we can't shake free. And Father, stand true to this promise for those sitting here this morning who have never come to Jesus. Those who are not pleasing to you because they haven't been good enough. Help them to see that Jesus is true. That his lifting up stands for them if they'll come. And draw them in even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.